Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the virtual Bible study presented by yours truly, Pastor Dan. We uh, gather together each week for a visit to our virtual church classroom, where presently we are studying the Christian Believer course, written by J. Ellsworth Callis and created by the Cokesbury Publishing Company. And uh, we're in Lesson 14. We're going to study the Doctrine of Atonement, Restored to Union with God. That's our topic this week. And uh, each week we gather for this time of, you know, I'd like to say it's a conversation, but it's a one-way conversation, isn't it? And I guess if you're listening, maybe if you're like me, you're talking back to me, but I just can't hear you. So don't forget. And it's always fun to hear from you, so send me a message once in a while and let me know how this is affecting your life. I'm anxious to join with you in this journey. Please keep in mind that this virtual Bible study class, this virtual church classroom is not meant to be your only uh, place of connection with the Bible and with other Christians. I urge you with all my heart to be a part of a church family. I understand that some don't fit you as well as others, but the fact is is there's a place out there where God wants you to be in a spiritual relationship with other Christians because we need each other, because we balance each other and we make each other better. We urge each other on, and uh, you need that. If you do this exclusively, then you're just gathering information. But what we want you to do is take this information and let it be a part of how God changes your life. A part of how God changes your life. This week in southwest Indiana, the weather has been spectacular. This is autumn the way we all want it to be. There are cool, crisp nights frosty mornings, crunching of the leaves, and uh, the gentle breezes and moderate temperatures during the day. Lots of sunshine. It's just been spectacular. It's that kind of weather everybody says, well, almost everybody says they love most, that wonderful fall season. It doesn't last long, and as we all know here in the Midwest, especially in southwest Indiana, it's a uh, short respite that is followed by tree uh, bare trees with brown clackety branches and gray skies and wet winter days. And so we relish this while we can as we prepare for uh, the, the rainy, cold, snowy season that is to follow. <clears throat> it is mid-October and uh, people have their Halloween and fall decorations out. The Kids are getting ready for tricks or treats, and uh, at church, we are getting ready to have a special celebration to honor and acknowledge our volunteers. We're getting ready to have our annual charge conference with our district superintendent. Uh, We're going to celebrate the saints who have gone before us in this past year, and uh, then before you know it, we'll be settling in. Uh, to the Thanksgiving and Advent and Christmas seasons, so it's it's sort of like uh, it's sort of like the the train has crossed the crest of the hill and the year is now headed downhill towards its conclusion, and it just it feels like it's picking up speed, even though we know that that's 
impossible you know time doesn't uh, pick up speed it pretty much runs the same speed all the time with uh, with all due respect to the physicist who would explain to me that there are variations but for the most of us time is is how we experience it isn't it and uh, no bad jokes this week uh, rather we'll just get right on to our topic a really wonderful beautiful topic the atonement Restored to Union with God. When you think of atonement, what does that mean to you? Do you think of it as sacrificial death, the cross, the blood of Jesus, the day of atonement? Do you think of Jesus as the Lamb of God? Do you imagine our... uh, sins somehow being covered because of Jesus? Do you picture in the old tabernacle, tent of meeting, do you, do you picture the mercy seat? Do you think of the paschal lamb? These are all terms that have been referred to over the years, and uh, they all have to do with the nature of sin, and in particular, the way of atonement because of sin. As you study this concept and read in the scriptures, you discover that this is a term that appears frequently in scripture and is referred to even more frequently in other terms. Uh, It is an Old Testament term and it's a New Testament term. And it's basically an idea that gives us a way of justification before God. It's a way that God can justify saving us even though we do nothing to deserve it. And because we, unfortunately, will continue to sin against God. So, atonement is, in a simple way of explaining, a word that means at one meant. If you spell it out and break it into three parts, you see at one meant. So, atonement is bringing together that which has been separated, creating a oneness that has previously not existed. When you read in the scriptures throughout the week, you probably began to see a pretty methodically deliberate expression of the Holy Spirit, as often is the case in scripture. You will find yourself reading something and then moving forward in a way that feels like climbing a flight of stairs or something. In Leviticus, for example, you see the establishment of atonement rituals, uh, ways in which God gives people a, a means or a, a, a physical expression of their sacred relationship with God, and in particular, expressions that offer up a, a uh, explanation for God's forgiveness of people who don't do anything to particularly deserve it. In the Exodus, you, you, demonstrate, or you see demonstrated this, uh, this brokenness that exists in the relationship, and you realize that God is looking for a way, uh, not so much to deliver the people, because God already knows that, but a way for the people to accept deliverance. And uh, perhaps maybe that's why they were allowed to suffer as long as they were, till they cried out to God, we, we used to think we didn't need you, but now we know we need you. Please help us. And then you read in Isaiah that uh, it comes through the suffering of a servant. It comes through the suffering of a very special person. 
and that this is a sort of cleansing fountain from which our deliverance comes. And then in Romans, Paul explains it to us in very specific terms that we receive this justification through faith in Jesus Christ, that it's a free gift, but we aren't justified unless we accept it. Then in Hebrews, we see Jesus as our high priest and as our sacrifice. And so he becomes the embodiment of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. He is both the offering and the offerer on our behalf. A priest is someone who intercedes before God for the people and intercedes with the people on behalf of God. And so Jesus becomes the great high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice so that we might have atonement or oneness with God. So as you read through those uh, passages, you begin to get a picture of this progression, a progression that really begins with Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Do you recall how when Adam and Eve sinned and uh, they turned their, their noses up at God and kind of said, hey, I think maybe God's just jerking us around here and you know, suddenly they've doubted God's character, they've doubted God's goodness, and uh, then they begin to realize that they've sinned against God and their shame and embarrassment causes them to cover themselves with leaves. Now, you can picture that literally if you want, or you can take it as a figurative story. Uh, some people debate this issue pretty vigorously. I'm not sure that it's necessary. Uh, I personally take the Bible literally, not because I'm an ignorant savage, but because it's easier to understand the, the heart of the matter if we'll just read it as it is written. And what I see is people who had no awareness that there was anything wrong with them suddenly feeling shame and wanting to cover their shame in some way. So they make garments out of leaves to cover themselves with. But then when God discovers their sin or discovers that they are ashamed and hiding from God, God covers them by God's own hand. <clears throat> and so they can't adequately cover themselves because... Well, let's face it, if you cover yourselves with leaves, you're going to have to renew your clothing periodically. I can tell you, for example, that uh, my backyard is full of leaves, full of leaves from all the beautiful trees we have. And, and you know, you could take the greenest of those leaves and knit yourself a garment out of it, but eventually you would have a dry, flaky thing that would fall off. And it might even itch a little bit. But... A garment made of leaves is a very temporary garment and not a very effective one, isn't it? But on the other hand, when you take the skin of an animal and you prepare it properly, it can become a piece of clothing that lasts for a lifetime. And uh, this is why leather goods are so popular and so sought after. Uh, Well-prepared leather clothing can last you a lifetime and can be passed down through the generations if it's maintained well. And so, in a very real sense, God takes their ineffective covering of their shame and replaces it with a very effective covering of their shame. The problem is, something had to die in order for that to happen. <clears throat> Up to that point, the Bible gives us every reason to think that all the animals and the people got along and there wasn't any death and there wasn't any uh, munching on each other's flesh or anything for nutrition. And, uh, and yet after sin 
has entered and the shame has come, God allows them to be covered from their shame, but through the death of an animal that then becomes the thing that covers their nakedness and protects them from the elements. And the world has never been the same since. So, this is the first example of atonement. This is, this is God's way of atoning with, the, with the Adam and Eve. And then we get the story of their sons, uh, uh, Abel and Cain. And uh, Abel and Cain apparently have been taught to make certain sacrifices in order to have oneness with God. And in a particular instance, Cain's sacrifice is in some way uh, like a blasphemy. It's, it's as though he has done something that is, is, uh, is a betrayal of the heart of the matter. And so he's tried to make a sacrifice that really betrays his lack of respect for God. And, and so I, rather than get into a detailed study of that particular scripture, what I want you to think about is, is that, that Abel made sacrifices that pleased God and Cain made a sacrifice on one particular occasion that displeased God. And probably the reason is that Abel did with utter faith and devotion to God what Cain tried to do just to get by as a way of saying, I'm just trying to appease you so I can get on with my life. Uh, I've joked about this for years, but when my kids were a certain age, and maybe you could relate to this, it was easy to imagine that all they saw in mom and dad were obstacles. You know, that parents are just obstacles to the joy that you think you can create for yourself. And so in a very real sense, Cain, like many of us, views God and God's precepts as obstacles to our happiness, that we can't be happy as long as we have to obey a certain set of rules and abide by the leadership of a certain God. And so uh, this becomes apparent in Cain, and so his sacrifice is not pleasing to God, and he resents Abel for being so pleasing to God, and then Cain ends up killing Abel. Once again, God isn't done even after that sin with Cain because he protects Cain. And there are some indications just in the naming of Cain's sons and grandsons that he set the record straight with God, that he eventually got himself right with God. And uh, so difficult to say for sure. You have to read between the lines, do a little bit of study. But if you examine the names of his descendants, you begin to see that there is a devotion to God uh, that has has been repaired. And uh, so perhaps old Cain learned his lesson, but not without the shedding of Abel's blood. And so once again, rightness with God is dependent on the shedding of blood, in this case, Abel's blood. Then the atonement process becomes more methodical, more systematized in Abraham. He goes to uh, places of sacrifice before God, where he has met God or encountered God. He creates an altar, and he makes a sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. And it's not as though he couldn't afford it. You know, uh, for a long time, I thought that it, you know, it was going to have to cost you something. <coughs> Excuse me. The sacrifice needed to hurt a little bit in order to be considered a real sacrifice. 
And then I started thinking, you know, Abraham's pretty wealthy. He really didn't lack for anything. And the chances are pretty good that he had a whole pen full of unblemished little lambs pretty much all the time. And so when he chooses to make the sacrifice, it is for him an act of devotion to God that, that gives recognition to the fact that a, a unblemished innocent has to die in order to atone for our sin, in order to make us at one with God, despite our disobedience, despite our lack of respect for God. And so Abraham introduces us to a more systematic and consistent throughout the year of a relationship with God uh, effort to atone for sin. And his ultimate example then comes in his willingness to sacrifice his son. And of course, that image probably doesn't seem too hard for most believers to relate to the ultimate answer to the problem of sin. But let's let's go through it just the same. We see that Sarah and Abraham have sought to have a child of their own flesh, you know, the two of them together having this child. God promised the child to them. They got impatient and uh, but eventually they got their son. They got Isaac. And when Isaac was born, they rejoiced with laughter, which is why they named him Isaac, which means laughter. And then they, then they get this command from God to take him and sacrifice him, to kill him. And Abraham is obedient. And, and you know, there are many, many ways that we can interpret that story. But let's just stick to the facts for the moment. Abraham is obedient. He has his son bring the wood, and uh, his son, being well-educated by his father, says, now, I know we're getting ready to make a sacrifice, father, but where's the lamb, you know? And pretty soon he figures out it's him. And uh, then at that last moment, just as Abraham is about to commit this this, uh, murder of his own son as a form of sacrifice and obedience to God. And, and in those days, there were people sacrificing their children all the time to false gods. But, but this is different. This is the son, the one that they've been waiting for, the one who's supposed to bring a following that will be more numerous than the stars in heaven. And, and so how could this make any sense at all? And yet Abraham obeys, believing in the resurrection, believing that God is more than uh, capable of restoring Isaac and more than capable of, of things that are beyond Abraham's comprehension. So he prepares to do this thing and is stopped at the last moment by an angel, and they find that a substitute sacrifice has been presented in the form of a ram in the thicket. Now, this is fascinating stuff, because it speaks so plainly to God's plan for our atonement, for the ultimate answer to the problem of sin and death. Because who is our substitute? Jesus. He's the ram in the thicket. He's the substitute. Who is the beloved son that would birth a whole new generation that would exceed the number of stars in the heavens? But Jesus, and so he is both the sacrifice and the priest. He is Abraham, Isaac, and the ram all at once. And this is God's plan for atonement being expressed even before the concept of Jesus, the Son of God, 
has become even an inkling in the minds of the people. And then, of course, the system becomes system. The system becomes systematized in the uh, in in the Exodus and in the Law of Moses. Now the people have a tabernacle. They have a schedule of, of various kinds of offerings and various kinds of atonement. Um, it becomes more specific. God is beginning to get sophisticated with the people. God's beginning to say, "I want you to be a society that acts like you get it." I want you to be a society that suffers uh, the concerns and compassion for each other in a way that is reconciled through sacrifices and through fair judgments about our relationships with each other. In other words, God's teaching the children of Israel to grow up and to be more sanctified, to be holy and set apart as a special nation. And of course, as you read through the history uh, that is recorded in the Old Testament, you see that they were better at it sometimes than they were at others. And usually whenever they were better at it, it was because they had been deeply in trouble and in need of salvation and their Savior was given to them, perhaps in the form of King David or in the judges or in the various uh, special prophets, you know, that uh, uh, somehow gave them a way of, of deliverance. And so God is always creating opportunities for atonement, and the people either accept it or reject it. And that leads us then to the theory of our atonement, and it's not really a theory, but how do we explain then the ultimate atonement that comes through Jesus Christ? How do we wrap our minds around it? And in some ways, my comments are redundant because I've said these things week in and week out in different ways or another. But, you know, first of all, we can accept the fact that Jesus is probably more than anything that or anyone than we can really wrap our mind around. There's more to Jesus than we can fully comprehend. But what we understand is, is that while he was fully human, he was also fully divine. And so he is in every sense, God in the flesh among us. And so this is God acting as the sacrifice, as the judge, as the priest, as the executioner. This is God doing all of this. And yet this is a human like us who is dealing with the temptations that we struggle against, who is dealing with uh, the, the nature of humanity in, in its fullest extent, even its many limitations when compared to the kingdom of heaven. And this atonement then becomes a process of offering one final sacrifice that pretty much takes care of everything for all time and for everyone. And this final sacrifice is the atonement to end all atonement, so to speak. And it is everything that the Old Testament sacrificial atonement offerings uh, are, but then it's more. Because it's God offering God's self. Now the sin is not just being covered by the animal uh, skin of a dead animal, but it's being covered by Jesus. It's it's as though Jesus's blood is is being shed and poured over us, so that God no longer sees our sin, but sees His Son and His Son's sacrifice for our sake. This great act of love that God accepts as justification for our salvation and our oneness with God. 
How does Jesus do that? Well, he died on the cross. And in that way, he's like the lamb of the Passover. He's been offered up as a sacrifice whose meat will be consumed, that is absorbed into the depths of your body or your being, you might say, and whose blood is then painted on the doorposts of your life so that God's wrath would pass over you. So in that way, his body and its brokenness and blood shed is like that of the lamb. And so there's one way that he has created or generated atonement for us. But then then there's that thing that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane when before he goes through the physical uh, sacrificial offering, he goes through a spiritual and emotional sacrificial offering where we see Jesus pleading with God as though God's not there. He, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane in much the same way that we pray every time we talk to God, pleading with God, looking for deliverance, not sure if God is listening, not sure if God is there, hoping that we're being heard, hoping that we're going to get the answer we want, hoping for something. And Jesus never had that. Jesus never had that separation, that, that separation from God that caused his prayers to sound like our prayers until that night at Gethsemane. At that moment then, as he becomes like us in that he bears upon himself the weight of our sin, I can't explain this, and I can't offer you a way of envisioning this, but the evidence is there that he was separated from God in a way that had never been a part of his eternal existence. He who was one with the Father and the Holy Spirit is now detached from the Father and the Spirit. And this pain and the weight of this darkness of his bearing upon himself our sins that he did not deserve uh, to bear because he had never done anything to separate himself from God as we do was now experiencing the separation that we take for granted and, and don't even grieve enough. And so there's this thing, this supernatural cosmic thing that happens at Gethsemane that is certainly part of our atonement. And then when he dies on the cross and he is no longer present in that flesh that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he is a spirit descended to hell. And a spirit suffering the same, uh, the spiritual being that's suffering the same uh, punishment and hell that uh, is reserved for those who never learn to trust God or to believe in God's character, who reject God in every way. And so he goes and he sacrifices himself to his enemies. Uh, did you see the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Maybe you've read the book by C.S. Lewis. What happens when Aslan surrenders himself to the enemy and he allows himself to be humiliated and uh, abused and eventually killed? It's a beautiful way to illustrate what Christ did while he was in the grave. And then he comes back to life by his own power. It isn't as though someone called him out like he called Lazarus out. And he didn't call back 
himself as a revived sort of reanimated being but as the new creation the resurrected being firstborn of the resurrected dead so that we can see in him as his resurrection self is apparent to us our hope for our resurrection and so this whole process of Jesus's act of atonement is explained in manner uh, in a way to us but still pretty far beyond our reach so we try to experience the various elements of his sacrifices and fall short and this is kind of the nature of our religion really religion exists so that we can find a way to sort of quantify and add physicality to a relationship that is largely invisible And uh, so the church itself becomes, like many sacramental things, a physical expression of an invisible grace. And therefore, even in the church, with all its physical weaknesses, with all of its flawed human beings, there is the grace of God present through the Holy Spirit. So how does this atonement occur? Well... We've talked about its physical, spiritual nature, but at the end, what we receive is the oneness with God that only Christ could make possible. We are finding ourselves in a relationship with God that Christ makes possible. And we recognize then that through Him, our sin is covered. Through Him, our sin is still present, but it has no power over us, not like it did before. Through him, our sin is present, but Jesus is like an umbrella over our sin and over us so that when God looks upon us, he sees his son. And so we're literally saying, Jesus, stand between me and your father so that I might be in the presence of your father and yet not suffer a justifiable wrath. And Jesus says, I have justified you so that you can be in a relationship with the Father through me. And this is why we call him Lord. The idea of atonement, like most really grand themes, is so big that it has to be put into picture words or images, and yet those very images can easily become troublesome because no single image really appeals to everyone. And indeed, the whole concept of atonement rests upon our having a disposition of faith and gratitude. So, as we wrap up today, imagine yourself trying to explain the atonement to a secular young college student, let's say. Try to imagine explaining atonement to someone. Uh, who is not living in the faith that you have lived in, that is not sharing your belief system or your confidence in Christ, how would you explain atonement to them? And when you do so, ask yourself this, what about that whole concept of atonement is so difficult for people to understand? What was difficult about it for you? And as you think about the various discussions that I've presented to you with this concept of atonement and this expression of the nature of Jesus as our sacrificial lamb, as our paschal lamb, uh, how has that improved your understanding? Think about that. 
Because when it's all said and done, we have to believe as the people of Christ that God's divine love will find a way to bring us into oneness with God. And if we will simply reach back to the one who reaches out to us in prevenient grace, we can then be in a right relationship with God made possible through Christ. Let's close this time of our study with the prayer of Edward Shalito. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Beloved, you've been listening to Lesson 14 in the Christian Believer Study, a highly modified version of the Christian Believer Bible Study created by Cokesbury, written by J. Ellsworth Callis. And I am Pastor Dan. It's been my pleasure to share these basic thoughts about our doctrine with you. Keep in mind that these truths are built around the doctrine uh, that is described in the Nicene Creed. That's why as you look at this podcast in your player, you will see below the scriptures for next week a link to a view of the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed gives a pretty comprehensive understanding of what most Christians have held in common for countless years and generations for the sake of their walk with Christ. And so look at the creed and consider how these doctrinal things that we've covered up to this point are easily understood or better understood now than when you began. And then if you have questions, write to me. If you have uh, a special need, let me know. And uh, speaking of that, if you're in southwest Indiana, if you're near Jasper, Indiana, why don't you come see us over at Shiloh United Methodist Church? It would be my pleasure to meet you. And uh, if you're visiting from far away, then please tell me so. If you're considering worshiping with us because you've been listening to this and you want to see the face behind the voice or or experience the community that I've been urging you to experience, well, please tell me that's what's going on. Your feedback helps so much with determining the value of this particular effort. It takes several hours a week to prepare it, and uh, knowing that it feeds you makes it all worthwhile. And so please do keep in form, uh, in, in touch with us. Also remember that if you're not in this area, if you're from far away, that uh, two things I'd ask of you is first, let me know if you're hearing this, especially in a foreign country, because that's just fun. And if you are hearing this uh, in a not-so-foreign location, but you can't come to Shiloh for church, then promise me you'll go to church somewhere. Find a community of believers that you can be a part of. Don't let this be the only thing you do. But... For now, I want to wish you well, and may God bless you and keep you as you go in peace to love and serve our Lord. Mm-hmm.